Ladies and gentlemen and Corner Kick fam, welcome back to the Corner Kick podcast. It is a 2020 summer finals wrap-up edition. We are wrapping up the summer. We witnessed two historic games of football this weekend. We are going to discuss a triumphant victory for Lionel Messi and Argentina in the Maracanã against Brazil in the Copa America final. But we will be doing that after discussing what has to be said, an incredible Euro 2020 final between Italy and England, which ended 3-2 on penalties to the Italians in Wembley. The Atsuri lifting their Euro crown after not qualifying for the World Cup in 2017. But before that, I am joined by a man who did not poke a ball in a goal mouse scramble into the back of the net for the Italians. It is Caleb Rhodes. Hello, hello. You know, we were all Leonardo Bonucci in that moment, I think, or at least the Italian supporters, such as myself, were. And I am also joined by a man who did register a few touches in the Italian penalty box, unlike Harry Kane in that game. It is Nathan Strauss. That is true. I registered probably, what, six or seven. Uh, Harry Kane did not. Yeah, gents, obviously, let's get to the big game from the weekend, or the one that took place a bit more recently than the other big game, which happened on the Saturday. The Euro final. Caleb, you and I watched this game together. It was potentially the most tense experience that I can remember watching a soccer game together. I, I don't know what it was about this game, whether it was the the historical elements, whether it was the actual play that unfolded on the pitch, the pendulum swingings that were happening in this game, you know, the tactical adjustments or lack thereof, which I imagine we'll get to in this game between both managers, uh, the drama of a penalty shootout, the drama of England being involved in a penalty shootout. We're about a little over 48 hours removed from watching the final. I think you and I discussed a lot of stuff during the game and after the game, but what are your reflections on the final that was and you know England losing in Italy Italy's redemption arc being complete what are my reflections first of all I this was just comparing this final to the 2016 final is just night and day I mean I think this was actually an entertaining game for 120 plus minutes which you often can't say of, of many international finals which tend to be quite cagey affairs Look at, you know, the 2014 and 2010 World Cups, for instance. Oh, you know, I was obviously supporting Italy. I think I was the only one of, of the three of us who was like hardcore for the Italians. Um, and I think this was just such a fitting end um, to, to the tournament for them. It was beautiful seeing Chiellini so happy to win. Um, you had... Benucci after the game immediately going to the cameras and saying it's coming to Rome um, in a bit of a dig towards the English and I think unfortunately as as you know impressive as it was for England to make their first international final in you know decades and decades and decades it was a pretty underwhelming way 
uh, to end this tournament. You know, I think scoring in the second minute, as Luke Shaw did, uh, ended up being kind of counterproductive for them because they kind of just defended deep from then on out. And I'm kind of curious to hear your guys' thoughts on the tactical switch that Gareth Southgate made, switching to that back three with Trippier coming in as a right back, who obviously assisted Luke Shaw at left back. But otherwise, it seems like it was an overly defensive formation that really just let Italy control the game entirely. And ultimately, all of the momentum was for the Italians pretty much from the second. I just want to say this Luke Shaw goal was hilarious because Caleb <laughs> Caleb gets to my house at like around 250, <laughs> maybe like two, two, like around like 245, 250 ish. You know, we get settled. I bring out, you know, the snacks and the drinks and stuff. And like we're sitting down, we're relaxing. We're like, okay, probably, you know, a few minutes until anything happens knowing these teams. And then boom, Luke Shaw scores and our jaws just like hit hit the floor. (laughs) (laughs) And then, yeah, it was a wild ride from there. But yeah, Nathan, what, what were your reflections 48 hours removed? So, I mean, as soon as the lineups came out, I shot a text being like this tactical change clearly favors Italy. Uh, and I think getting this the starting lineup wrong was the first of a couple of mistakes made by Gareth Southgate. Um, and I'm not trying to scapegoat him because, as, as Caleb mentioned, Southgate throughout this tournament has generally done or gone over and above my expectations for him, at least as a coach and tactician. Yeah, it really didn't make sense to me whatsoever when you know that Italy are good on the counter to let them have even more of the ball. All in all, it was a a pretty baffling decision. We knew how Harry Kane had struggled to get involved in the play and that switching to a a formation with really truer wingers favored him and his ability to drop deep rather than serving as the focal point. Although him dropping deep did lead to the first goal, has to be said. I mean, it did lead to the first goal, but again, England scored so early that they decided to basically cede possession for the rest of the game after like the 10th minute. So again, it was not like England scoring early should have been the death knell for the Italians. Like England should have scored once then, and they should have scored again before the half was up. And then they should have, you know, maybe brought on Trippier for ideally a, a true winger, whether it be Sancho or Saka. Instead, Southgate managed the game backwards. He also took off. Um, I, we should get to the penalty selection in a minute, I suppose. But his management of extra time with substitutes and bringing players on and off was completely out of sync with what I think the majority of people would have done. And obviously it, it, it proved to really hurt him in the end. So I agree with that. But I, I can also understand, looking back on this now, and I, I think Nathan... I am. I was very much like after the game. I was very much in the same mindset that you are about the decision making from Southgate. But then I've had some time to reflect and think about some of the things that he said early on in the tournament and before the tournament even. And one of them that kind of stuck out to me was that he, after the 2018 World Cup final, or after the 2018 World Cup when England really gassed out against Croatia, before this tournament. He was in front of the media and he was speaking about, you know, teams like Portugal and France and how they win international tournament tournaments. And it's by being kind of as pragmatic and for lack of a better word, like not chaotic at all. They, they, they go out to mitigate as much chaos as possible and, you know, control 
what they can in terms of the opposition making mistakes. I do think that switching to the back three was, uh, while it did work for the first 20 minutes, I think England were actually very, very good for the first 20 minutes of this game. They controlled the flow of possession. They really locked down the space. Italy couldn't find a way to pass through them. But as the game went on, I'm just wondering if there were changes that he could have made quicker And it did bring me back to that game in Russia against Croatia where England took the lead and Southgate was very, very slow to adapt to Luka Modric and Ivan Rakitic just taking over in that game. And it eventually led to, you know, them being bounced from the tournament. So I think while the pragmatism was the thing that got them to the dance and got them to this final, I wonder if... Southgate was just one or two big risks short in this game. And I think you kind of alluded to that in in how he made his substitutions, particularly in added time. And if Mancini, you know, making big risks in the game, like taking off Immobile early in the second half for Berardi, taking off Insigne, who looked like he was on really tired legs for Bellotti, even though Bellotti missed the penalty, you know, bringing on Cristante in the second half to offer a bit more of a run from deep. I wonder if Mancini just gambled, made, you know, educational gambles way more than Southgate. And, you know, you're looking at the talent that that Southgate left on the bench or that he left to bring on a little late. It's so tough because England did so well to get here, but maybe the approach just wasn't quite what you wanted to see in a final, Caleb. Yeah, I mean, I thought his substitutions were just always awful. Pretty much every substitution he made didn't make sense for, for one reason. Or another. When he's going to chase the game, moments after Bonucci scores, which was, you know, a goal that was coming because Italy had so much pressure on England for pretty much the entirety of the second half. He brings on Bukayo Saka for Kieran Trippier, which is a is a fine move, but I think not the move that's going to turn England into like an attacking force again. And then he brings on Jordan Henderson for Declan Rice. And I think in the game, Nick, you and I were discussing how it seemed like Calvin Phillips, neither of them were having an especially good day. And neither of them had, you know, great performances down the stretch in this tournament. I thought Rice played pretty well until he very clearly got exhausted. Yeah. And then we wait, you know, through the rest of regular time, we go into extra time. We're now almost through the first half of extra time. And we're just pulling off Mason Mount, who had been completely ineffective in that more forward role today. And he's clearly much better. He's clearly much better as a kind of, you know, more center midfield type than a kind of inside forward. Like he was set up in that front three. And we bring on Jack Grealish in the 99th minute. And it's just a little too little too late. And then obviously, and I think we probably should talk about this. The 120th minute substitutions just for the penalties of Marcus Rashford and Jaden Sancho. Neither player had a ton of minutes at this tournament at all. Neither player had time to touch the ball pretty much. It's come out that Rashford is actually injured and he's going to be getting surgery immediately following this final. Yeah. So you bring on two players just for the penalties And you either, as a manager, are about to look like a hero or about to look like a zero. I mean, the hero moment is like at, what was it, the 2014 
World Cup with Tim Cruel. With Tim Cruel against Costa Rica in the round of 16. Yeah, when, uh, who was it? Was it Van Hall at that tournament? It was. Substituted off Stecklenburg for Tim Cruel, um, as if Tim Cruel was some master penalty person. And then everyone looked at the stats and it's like, no, he's like, fine. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But it plays a mind game, right? Um, This really did not come off. And I think, you know, obviously in the last few days, there's been a lot of press about how you like, you know, the nation of England responded to the misses of Rashford, then Sancho, and then Saka. But this is one of those moments where it just seems like Southgate really had no handle on managing this game at all. And it came to the to the fore in so the key moments. I, I I think that's a bit harsh, right? I think there's part of me that feels like he wanted this game to resemble the game against Germany, where it was kind of a dead rubber. England made it a very, very unpleasant watch for about 60 minutes. And then they were able to exploit some German mistakes and get on the board and wrap things up. And the trouble here, and I think Nathan pointed this out, is that they scored way too early. And then they just took their foot entirely off the gas. And he kind of managed the game backwards, which I don't think ever works, especially in modern football. And especially against an Italy team that you know if you cede the ball to them, they're just going to end up figuring you out. And they ended up figuring them out. And I just wonder if like he should have gone to, you know, Caleb, you mentioned the Saka change after the goal. I wonder if, you know, Bukayo Saka coming on for Kieran Trippier at like the 57th minute instead of the 67th minute after it's 1-1 would actually have led to England being far more progressive early in the second half and maybe they could have seen out the game way more effectively than they ended up doing but yeah nathan i think getting the penalties is important yeah well and also just when we talk about managing the game backwards what we mean is that like in theory going one nil up should mean that you go more conservative later on in the game but when you go one one nil up playing you know the three four two one it just led to players like mount sterling and kane they combined those three players combined for 44 passes and zero that's your XG. Entire, yeah, that's your entire front three and really the only true attacking threats. Like there's a reason that your wingbacks were the ones who were looking most lively in the first 15 minutes with, you know, at the end of the day, the highest XG and XA of the entire team. Yeah, there was a period in this game where Italy just figured out that the only person they had to stop was Sterling. Right. And no offense, but I, I like the move to bring on Saka in the 70th minute. But bringing on Henderson in the 74th without bringing on a player like Jack Grealish ahead of him kind of is a like for like when all is said and done. And so, again, Southgate was reactionary and, you know, his version of of being adventurous or taking like an educated gamble, like you said, Nick, was with the starting 11 when I think clearly, um, you know, it should have been the other way around. But let's get on to the penalties because this was incredibly stressful. And has led to, I think, it, it sort of exposed a lot of the divisions in and amongst the the England fan community. But Nick, I don't know what direction you want us to take with this, but uh, it's it's your lead. Well, let's talk about the penalties themselves, and then we can talk about the fallout. And I think it is important to talk about the fallout because that's you know part and parcel of this entire experience. But here's what I'm going to say: I don't like bringing on players just to take a penalty. I think it can really work, as Caleb said, and you look like a hero. But more often than not, I feel it just adds unnecessary pressure to a process that is very much, you know, you get up to the spot, 
you have your decision made. There's not a lot of extra thought that should go into it or else you will miss. And I think bring on players just for the, just to take a penalty. And these are experienced penalty takers. Jaden Sancho has a very good penalty record for Borussia Dortmund when he's been the spot kick taker and not Marco Royce. And Marcus Rashford has a very, very good penalty record. He's only missed, I think, two out of his last 17 for Manchester United. It's not like they're bringing on like schmucks to take these penalties, right? They're bringing on good players to take these penalties. And they could have scored. You know, Rashford was very, very close to scoring. Sancho, not so much. Yeah, I mean, I think it is just a lot of unnecessary pressure. And I understand like penalties are things that are decided, you know, weeks, days, month ahead and in advance. But there was just a lot. I mean, there was just a lot of like what ifs, right? And you never want there to be what ifs after something like this. But I think the point is, too, that, you know, you should have the scenario where you're taking penalties in a Euro final nailed down. And there should be a plan. And I think that's what the Italians had pretty clearly. They they looked as soon as, you know, 120 minutes elapsed, they were ready. They were lined up. They knew who's taking it. England, Southgate has like a huddle of players around him. He doesn't even know who's on the field because he's now like subbed on Jordan Henderson. He subbed off Jordan Henderson. Like who's left? He's looking around like a headless chicken. And he's like, who wants to to take penalties no it's come out since then that like that order that they had that's why he brought on Rashford and Sancho yeah sure but because those two were like the programmed guys but I'm I not, think I'm not sure about Maguire or Saka I think that's like the two that you can have you know and one scores and one doesn't but I think the like actual making of the substitution you know in that moment like do you do you go with the guys on the pitch or do you go with the guys who like haven't kicked a ball in hours to like come on and take decisive kicks in front of the entirety of, of the world and the nation and you know everything rests on their shoulders you know i mean i know what i would do <laughs> no i think i do too i think i do too I, I think in my mind the only decision that doesn't sit right with me because of the penalty records and everything else is having Saka take the deciding kick for a number of reasons there's like three reasons why i think this was the wrong decision um first of all I mean, like you said, Nick, Rashford and Sancho have good records in their professional career when it comes to taking penalties. But Saka had never taken a professional penalty before with the first team. So that is, first of all, a huge situation, maybe like the biggest situation to take your first professional penalty, knowing that you represent the potential game prolonging penalty. You know, obviously they would have still needed a save after that. It's a lot of pressure for someone who is a literal teenager. Second of all, there is a fact that he is so young and that missing a penalty at this age for someone who could very well, you know, play in three to four more national tournaments or international tournaments, rather, you know, he's just a 19 year old and a young 19 year or he's like, you know, not, 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 he's not, doesn't turn 20 until midway through this upcoming season. So you risk denting his confidence for really the remainder of his career. There's also the optics of having players who could have been on the field at that time someone like Jordan Henderson with experience or even someone like Jack Grealish or Raheem Sterling, who all are more experienced and, you know, would be less scapegoatable, if if you will, especially in the case of Henderson in a situation like that. So I think it's just a combination of the substitutions, the bringing players on, you know, in injury time, basically to take these penalties and having them miss and then having Saka you know, the most inexperienced player on the pitch 
take that deciding one that I think reflects poorly, especially because of the other options that did exist in the squad at the time. I think also, especially knowing because Southgate has been in that position himself as you know, he was a bit older. He was 25 when he missed that penalty against Germany in, in, in the, at the euros in 1996. But it's like, I don't know. I just felt a little bit like, you know what this feels like. And to, I get that like Saka probably volunteered to take it. And, you know, he deserves a lot of credit for doing that. But surely as like a manager, you know, you look at Sterling and you look at Grealish and you say, okay, Saka, we're going to have you take, you know, the this, this sixth or seventh kick if it comes to that. But I'm going to have, you know, Raheem and, and Jack take kick five. Yeah. And to be fair, I mean, uh, uh, Grealish has never taken a senior penalty as wild a stat as that is. But still, seeing someone, or someone, yeah, exactly. Like there, there were so many other options, and it felt like Southgate just sort of went with the FIFA automated generated like penalty lineup instead of sort of using any sort of critical thinking skills late on. How do we want to take this conversation from here? I think we can either do the shout outs to Italian players. Let's or see, shout out to the... Italians. Okay, first, let's do that. Well, first, I want to shout out Pickford for making an unbelievable save against a Jorginho penalty, which I did not think was possible. And I honestly think Pickford had a, a great tournament. I think he proved a lot of doubters wrong. And that penalty save literally had me on the floor, as Caleb can attest to. <laughs> I, I think, you know, I've said a lot of things about Jordan, Jordan Pickford that are, have not been particularly flattering, you know, because of the club that he plays for. But I think that save and his performance at this tournament you know, he can be exceptionally, exceptionally proud of. And, you know, that he's got to hang that save up, like a photo of that save up somewhere in his house, because that was unbelievable. So shout out to Pickford aside. I think there are several Italian players that we've highlighted. First off, congrats to Nick for picking a dark horse who won it all. Very true. Very true. Mostly because dark horses don't even, dark horses don't tend to win. So I think that's, that's a good call on your part. But there are so many players on this Italian team that I think really impressed me. Jorginho, one of them, becoming one of the, I think, 10 players ever to win the Champions League and the European Championship in the same year. Um, Marco Verratti, who didn't even appear in the first few games of the tournament due to injury, who absolutely bossed the midfield on the day. And then, of course, the man who limped off with an injury, quite sadly, towards the end, Federico Chiesa, who we've talked a lot about, who displaced Berardi, who I think also had a great tournament when it's all said and done, but has been so, so excellent this entire time. And I am just, I might actually start watching more Serie A games and more Juventus games just to see more of this guy in action. That's how good he was in this tournament for me. I My shout out would go to Donnarumma as well, who I think had sort of not fallen off necessarily, but I just remember all of the fanfare when he was, you know, basically the youngest professional goalie playing in a team that was, you know, contending year in and year out. And obviously he's now sealed his move to PSG, but I thought he had a really impressive tournament as well in a tournament that was defined by a lot of own goals and sort of fluky goals. He did a good job um, in general of being solid. And admittedly, he did have the uh, the defensive pairing of Benucci and Chiellini in front of him, but that's who my shout-out would go to. Also, Di Lorenzo and Emerson both played quite well in the final. They weren't super noteworthy, but you know, I think both exceeded expectations for two games in a row as they obviously went on to, to medal. 
Yeah, I mean, on the point of Donnarumma, you know, he wins the player of the tournament award from UEFA and, you know, whatever you want, you can dispute that. But, you know, UEFA saw fit to give him the player of the tournament. And I think this is a huge moment for him because it's a huge turning point in his career. You know, he's leaving Italy and winning a trophy with his home nation before heading to PSG. That's huge. We have to talk one more time about the orchestrator of all of this, Roberto Mancini. It was really interesting. I was reading a bit about Mancini's last sort of few months at Manchester City. And this is someone who asks, you know, quite a bit and more from his players and his coaching staff. You know, he's absolutely ruthless in terms of training. Uh, There was a story about like how Jerome Boateng uh, was still at Man City and he had just had twins or his wife had just had twins. And Mancini called him back from like paternity leave just to have him sit on the bench for a game. Like didn't bring him on. He just wanted him back like as an option. And also like there's a story about how when Wigan beat City in the FA Cup final in 2013. Like the City players were like privately celebrating because they knew that like they were finally going to be rid of Mancini and his like hard nosed, all work all the time, no play style. And for a nation or a footballing nation like Italy, who had suffered, you know, the biggest catastrophe in their history in 2017 by getting knocked out of qualification for the World Cup by Sweden. Someone like Mancini is exactly who you needed to come and rebuild this Azori project into, you know, another trophy winning side. Being able to work with this team for two plus years, being able to set the tactical patterns up for two plus years, integrating the young players like Barella, Uh, Like Donnarumma, you know, he officially made the changeover from Buffon to Donnarumma, bringing back Chiellini into the fold after his international retirement to to kind of marshal this entire team. And he became, you know, a focal point for this entire tournament. I think that Jordi Alba moment is going to live on in infamy for a long time, you know, as well as, you know, the joy that he has just stopping a goal, like every little like fist bump he gives you know, after making a tackle, it's just this Italy team has been really incredible to watch. And I think it is a testament to the style and the panache and the drive of one Roberto Mancini. Despite all of the the joy that occurred um, from the Italy camp during the game and in the, the celebrations after the fact, there was a lot of off the pitch behavior online and in person that I think we need to discuss. And we knew that this was going to happen if England lost. We knew that players, mostly black players, would end up getting scapegoated. But after Sancho, Rashford, and Saka missed penalties to end the game, um, all three of them were the victims of some really horrendous abuse. Rashford's mural in his hometown uh, south of Manchester, I believe, was defaced. Players were, you know, getting the the usual sort of threats and, uh, you know, monkey emojis on Instagram, et cetera, et cetera. And it's sad that we're, we, we can even refer to these things and be as blasé as we are because we knew it was going to happen. And not to get like too, too off topic, but domestic violence goes up 36% when England loses in international tournaments. 
Um, and so there are many fractures, I think, in English society in particular that come out uh, when England loses. And as Caleb mentioned, um, England really debased themselves the whole day, or rather a, a portion of England fans did, you know, invading Wembley uh, in a move that likely cost England's bid for the 2030 World Cup. Um, England's been sanctioned now for four different charges of failing to like keep the peace, disrupting the national anthem, um, failure to secure the ground, and something else as well. So all in all, it was a pretty dismal day, uh, you know, coupled with the loss. And uh, yeah, what do we what do we want to discuss specifically about that? Yeah, I mean, don't forget them. They also got sanctioned for shooting a laser into the eye of Casper Schmeichel. The English. I don't really understand who they think they are sometimes. They just think they can get away with everything. And it's just all of this behavior is so inappropriate on so many levels. And I think the one you know, thing that's been nice to see is how the, the FA has you know, defended Saka, Sancho, and Rashford, how Kane and Southgate and other members of the squad have all rallied behind them. I think that's been really positive. But I think the English fan base has this really nasty streak in it that seems sort of unto itself amongst the truly top, you know, soccer nations, right? We don't hear of this same behavior. Actually, to some extent we do, but I don't know. Something about the English, it's just like worse in every way. I don't know if it was amplified because it was at Wembley or the fact that, you know, the English riled themselves up about it's coming home once again and, you know, feel that something that they deserved has been taken away from them, even though, you know, in sports, you deserve what you actually achieve on the field. I don't know. It, it was really, really unfortunate, a lot of what I saw. And it didn't just start today. This was kind of the culmination of, I think, a lot of misbehavior that's been cropping up over the course of this tournament. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I'll, I'll talk about the team first. So I think part of the reason why I wanted to see this England team succeed and why I would have been very happy to see them win is that they are such you know, empathetic, caring, thoughtful individuals. There are people on this team who have you know, uplifted their communities and amplified voices who oftentimes feel you know, very marginalized in the world of sports. You know, you think about... Jordan Henderson retweeting the, I believe it was the um, LGBT supporter who was attending, you know, his very first match and saying, you know, like this, this, we, this is a place where you, you should feel welcomed. And I hope that you did, you know, you think about everything that Marcus Rashford has worked so hard to do in terms of serving um, underfed families below the poverty line in the UK throughout the pandemic uh, you think about Jaden Sancho, who is uh, working on building homes for people in his old neighborhood. Part of me feels like England fans like don't deserve this team. And that's like a very harsh thing to say because there are a lot of them that do. You know, immediately following this, you saw, you know, a bunch of prominent journalists and England England fans and YouTubers, creators, soccer writers, whoever it may be saying like, protect these three guys, you know, protect Saka, protect Sancho, protect Rashford. I don't know. It's just really sad. First and foremost, it's like very, very, very sad. And it makes me feel very sad. 
I, like Nathan said, I think this absolutely should eliminate England from contention for hosting a major tournament in the near future. And the stuff in terms of like people storming into Wembley alone is absolutely egregious. And the fact that they, like Roberto Mancini's son had to sit on like the stairs, like they, cause people invaded like the friends and family section. Like that's incredible. That, like that's absolutely incredible. It's like, and I understand that like UEFA and FIFA have very different criteria in terms of you know where they pick to host major finals and major tournaments. You know, as we are, we're going to probably discuss in a year's time when it gets ramped up to for Qatar. But my one charge to the England fans who do this is, if you want another tournament and if you want it to come home again. Like, show us you deserve it. Like, show us you actually deserve to host these historical epic nights. And maybe we do have to find another place to do it. So in a rare win for pretty much the entire soccer world, spare Brazilians, uh, Messi has finally done it. He's finally won that elusive trophy to Argentina, wins the Copa America 1-0, And I think this really is one of the career-defining moments for Messi. In a career full of highs, he finally has done the one thing that has evaded him since he was really a kid. I was just so happy that Argentina won this game. And I really have have nothing against Brazil. And really, I'm not even the biggest Argentina fan in the world. Just the scenes of elation for Messi and for the entire squad that have been so starved for victory and have really found ways to lose in the last 13 or so years, particularly in South American competition, I was very relieved at this result. And I thought that Argentina did exactly what was required of them. It was not exactly a pretty game. They scored off of a mistake from Renan Lodi. But after that, they they kind of battened down the hatches. You know, they started subbing on defenders in the 55th minute. Um, and they really sort of made a meal of it in the most um, sort of stereotypical parking the bus fashion of all. But Argentina defeats Brazil, and they are finally champions of South America. Oh my, this game was very gritty. This was not, this was not aesthetic soccer viewing. This was, we got to get this man, Messi, a trophy soccer playing. And I think this is the first time out of all the disaster classes that Argentina has put on where I've seen the team elevate itself to be in the service of Messi. And that was just beautiful to see. I think Di Maria did his job. Rodrigo DePaul, who just transferred to Atleti, did his job. Messi himself had a relatively anonymous game, but you could tell that his his mind was in it when he was just flying in with slide tackles. Brazil, not a lot to say on their part, other than that they were pretty poor. Other than Neymar, they they were just they were just kind of bad but for me it was all worth it for just that moment of raw elation that you could see from Messi as he collapses to the ground after the final whistle and the team crowds around him and throws him up and down there can be no debate now in the <laughs> Messi Ronaldo debate like it's 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 over um it's actually a, over what uh there's like some great stats from this this Copa America 
Lionel Messi had the most goals, the most assists, the most free kick goals, the most key passes, the most chances created, the most successful dribbles, the most goal creating actions, the most shot creating actions, and the most accurate through balls of any player. Um, I believe there were no repeaters in that category from the Euros when it comes to those nine categories. Again, just truly illustrating how dominant of a player he was. Yeah, and I think you could see how much it meant to him as well. This has been something that has eluded him and has been, I think, the massive blemish on his his career that is now gone. <laughs> and I think the best illustration was the torrent of Instagram posts that he was posting in the hours afterwards that compared to all of his others, which are clearly kind of like happy family scenes or some sponsorship thing that's like pretty well curated by his publicist team he just let loose there were curses some some pretty pretty bad ones too uh in in, in spanish you could look for them for yourself he th- this was a man who felt his life was finally complete and i think that is something that sport can give and to witness that moment was was really really special I mean, yeah. I mean, this is incredibly emotional. And the thing about this is that remember, he had, this is a man who had retired from the national team at one point. You know, as, twice, twice as performative as those two at the times might have been, or as emotionally driven as those two times might have been. Like it did happen. You know, he did say, you know, maybe this isn't for me. That is a quote. He was like, maybe international football isn't for me. And it turns out that is not the case because it is, it, he is Lionel Messi, and this is his world, and we're all just living in it. And I do want to talk about someone other than Messi briefly. And that is Caleb Di Maria, who I think quite frequently for Argentina has been, you know, along with Aguero, the Robin to Messi's Batman in a lot of these big international tournaments. And this time he, you know, he is the guy who lifts the ball over Ederson and delivers the Copa America to Lionel Messi. And I think there's something quite beautiful about that. And there's also something quite beautiful about, you know, all of the players on Argentina immediately running to Messi, immediately crowding him. And it's one of those things where, like, you realize that these players know all of the narratives. Like, it's not like they're living in some insular bubble where they're not aware of, like, what the media is talking about or what, like, the fans are talking about you know, or, or even have like expectations for themselves, you know, and they, they're very like intuitive and they know like what people are talking about. And they also know like what is expected of themselves and what people are going to say if they were to have lost this game. And also the added bonus of winning (laughs) the Copa America that was supposed to take place in Argentina, but was brought to Brazil by Bolsonaro only to have Brazil lose in their own backyards in their most historic venue to their most historic rival i don't know it all was very very uh cinematic if you will and now we have the potential maradona cup uh exhibition (laughs) match between italy and argentina in naples that they're trying to schedule right now so i think yeah as you said all of this has a certain poetic nature to it and I think a certain poetic justice um, as well. And all in all was probably one of the best, you know, 18 hours of, of soccer I've experienced ever. 
Do we want to shout out another player real quick, Rodrigo DePaul? Yeah, I think we should shout out DePaul. I thought this man, holy crap. This has been a star-making year for him, I would say, 2021, and capped off, you know, obviously by his move to uh, La Liga champions, Atletico Madrid. But yeah, Nathan, I think this guy, this guy has really, really made a statement at this tournament. Yeah, and talk about someone who's something of a late bloomer. I mean, I vaguely remember him playing for Valencia in like the early 2010s. But we're talking about someone who like wound up going on loan back to racing in Argentina and then who played four or five rather full seasons with Udinese who are not exactly setting the world alight, nor are they even one of the biggest named teams um, in Italy. (laughs) The man was their team. (laughs) Yeah, no, seriously, like this is not, uh, I mean, he has earned his move to Madrid uh, to Atleti, where he now gets to play under obviously another legendary Argentine. He can really do it all. Like I had no idea what to expect of him, but he's yeah. This dude is like a mostly central Urente. Like he can actually dribble. He can create. The man can shoot. He had nine goals and nine assists for Udinese um, in a team that finished like twelve play twelve points above relegation. So, like, he is going to be a stud for Atleti. And he's only 27. He's entering the prime of his career. Uh, but, yeah, an amazing tournament all in all, I would and say. And he's got that gritty streak. He's going to fit in so well with that team. And another player that I want to highlight before we head out of here, Nathan, someone who I think you would have really loved to see stay at Arsenal and be the the number one there at the club. But Emmy Martinez, one of the more uh. spectacular tournament performances from a goalkeeper uh, and I think it's it's kind of interesting, Caleb, as you said, it's very poetic that both him and Donnarumma have had two amazing summers and are potentially going to be meeting in the stadium Diego Armando Maradona in Naples. Yeah, I mean, you guys know that I loved Martinez in his sort of COVID season breakthrough at Arsenal after Leno got injured. Um, you know, in fact, I even named him my my nominee for the Corner Kick Awards Comeback Player of the Year. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean... You're looking at a player who could very easily, you know, work a move to a club that's bigger than Villa. He had a pretty good season. He had an excellent start of the year for Villa. But really, he was on full display this tournament. He can really do it all, um, again, as a goalie. He's also wicked tall. I think it, were it not for Messi, he, he would have been in the conversation for player of the tournament as well. So I, I feel happy for him. Um, it's always nice to see him succeed. And a player that, that Messi recognized as being really important to this team after the tournament well with all that talk of goalkeepers shall we wrap things up here Lance? wait can i make one more note that's totally unrelated yes absolutely so ted lasso is nominated for an emmy and i think that's cool it is i don't know all i know is that was another pleasant surprise of a show yeah. i think it has i don't know if it's going to be able to win i think it is a good chance i think jason sudeikis definitely has a good chance of winning in that best actor for comedy uh, category but yeah it is a very cool thing football football is indeed life yeah i all the thing i want to highlight is you know the preview that we got today for arsenal all or nothing <laughs> oh my god uh, but, wait <laughs> no if you want to take it away nathan by all means so i'm just going to preface this by saying i was at my you know office job and i was like oh great i can like take my lunch break and like throw on the arsenal game 
this was not by any means like a first team quality performance or first team quality team. Obama Yang was playing, bro. Preseason, preseason, <laughs> preseason just started this week for Arsenal. That but was very early. Yeah, poor, poor Aquanquo. James Aquanquo just signed a, a new deal um, to become like a long term deal. He's a homegrown goalie, hasn't made a first team appearance. He's starting in the first game of preseason. And I think it was it was either Cedric or Paul Marie just absolutely hangs him out to dry. The the goalie Quanquo <laughs> just like whiffs on this on his clearance, and uh, yeah, and Hibbs ends up taking a, a, a one nothing lead. They would end up winning the game. And Eddie Nketiah also had like a pretty horrible miss. Yeah, I'm just too. I'm just choosing to not take any stock in this performance because it was literally the first week of preseason. And like I know people love to get worked up about stuff all the time, including and myself. Arsenal. And it's Arsenal, right? And you know, but it is what it is. It's like a it's a preseason mistake. Get it out of your system now. Is all I can say. Um, so yeah, but it was it was a little funny. Uh, even I can admit that. I think it is just like the confluence of announcing the all or nothing documentary. You know, bringing in some talented young players, uh, Tavares, and it looks like Lakonga from Anderlecht are coming in. And then like this is the first thing that happens. You know, cameras are rolling for preseason, and you know maybe this is on tape somewhere. Anyways, that is going to be it from us. That is going to be the end of our summer of soccer. We'll be back. We might take a little bit of a breather and we will be back. We're going to discuss a lot of transfer stuff. We're going to discuss stories in preseason. And then the Premier League is right around the corner. It's only about a month away. So we have a lot to discuss. We'll be having some guests on too, as we always do in the beginning of the season. Uh, So we're all looking forward to that. But until that time comes, Forza Atsuri, this England team will go again. I'm sure of it. And, you know, congratulations to Leo Messi in Argentina. I've been Nick Vinden. Gail Brits. Nathan Strauss. And we will see you all next time.